Good morning. We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to do the whole chapter. Second Corinthians chapter 9, Paul writes the following. He says, Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the, the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now, he may, he, now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness, while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanks, thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God, while through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ, and for your liberal sharing with them and all men, and by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We do thank you, Jesus. We thank you for yourself, for how generously you give us your presence, for how generously you pour out your Holy Spirit on us and illuminate the Word of God to us. You open our hearts to see wonderful things from your law that we didn't know. Uh, you have blessed us in countless ways, and we're grateful. We're, we're, we're thankful that you would meet us here and in this way on a Sunday morning. We pray that we would be faithful to you and generous back to you, now at least with our time and our attention, our focus, and our hearts that are, are ready for obedience, that are, are, are leaning in to hear your command, eager to say yes to whatever you would call us to. Bless your church in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're, uh, we're at an the end of a section on giving. That's what Paul's been talking about in Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He kind of started this up. He cued it up by showing that Christ is the example of, in generosity. He wrote, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. All other um, maybe, maybe applications of generosity, whether it's you giving your time or donating money or things like that, it's just a shadow, it's a hint, it's a sign, it's an arrow pointing towards Jesus, who is the giver. Jesus gives himself, that, that's what it's all about, and then we reflect that and talk about that and model that and imitate that in a variety of ways, but it's really all about Jesus. And here at the end of this passage, we get the same idea that it's not really about 
our giving at all. It's about his, and we want to be like him when we grow up, right? It's really not about you at all. The focus in this and every other Christian virtue, for that matter, for every, every other Christian practice, it's about God himself. And the thing that we focus on is God and that he is generous and that we are blessed by him. He wraps up the chapter, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He's the one who gives the gift. The first word is about God. The final word is about God. In between, we've got some practical responses. And because we do, we praise God. <laughs> now, verses 1 through 5 in chapter 9, it's dealing with some practical matters that we've really already talked about in the last chapter. Um, so, of course, you can go back and listen to old sermons on the website or the YouTube channel or the podcast or whatever. And if you listen to last week's sermon, then this paragraph of chapter 9 is going to sound real familiar because he's saying kind of the same thing that he started talking about in chapter 8. The basic gist of it is this. The Corinthians had been willing to give. Uh, when it mentions Achaia was ready a year ago, Achaia is the region that the city of Corinth is in. They were willing to give, they were ready to give, and they lacked follow-through. They were fine with giving, enthusiastic about giving as an idea. Uh, they, were, they were fine with giving in theory, but no collection was actually made, uh, so nothing came of this theoretical willingness. It sounds like this might have put Paul in an awkward position because he says that he boasted about the Corinthians' generosity to other churches. He's like, oh yeah, they, the Corinthians, they're going to give more than anyone else. They are so excited about giving. Oh wait, what's that? They haven't given anything yet? They just talked about it. Okay, going to write a letter. And, you know, so like a year ago, it says that their zeal stirred up the majority. Their willingness to give was an inspiration to everybody else. The other churches got excited about ministering to the saints, which specifically was the poor and persecuted churches in Jerusalem and in Judea. But other churches are getting on board and getting excited and taking up collections to give money to the poor Christians. And the Corinthians are like, yeah, this is a great idea. And then they never actually gave any money. Um, so Paul had sent some people led by Titus to go and encourage the Corinthians to finish what they started. These guys are going to take the Corinthians gift and distribute it to those in need. But Paul has been embarrassed by the Corinthians more than once before. So if you look at verse four again, you can imagine, you see Paul's wariness here in the way he writes this. He says, if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of the, this confident boasting. Meaning we all talked about how generous you are. And if we show up and you're not giving anything, that's just going to be embarrassing for everybody. Therefore, verse five, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised by the way, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Now, all of this is in a letter that isn't to us originally, right? It's to the Corinthians. Um, it was a written at a specific time, to a specific place, to specific people. And we need to see the distinction here between what is unique to their situation and then what principles we can glean uh, where there's wisdom that's applied to every church. The awkward situation Paul had found himself in with the, with Corinth and the Macedonians, all of that was pretty specific to their, their you know, time and place. But the principle stands that to be zealous for good works and then not do the good works is a mistake, and it's embarrassing for everyone. This is something that is not unique to the Corinthians. It is a problem that extends beyond the first century, and it extended beyond, you know, other churches. You think of James describing the kind of Christian who has faith without works, who goes up to 
the poor starving cold person. It says, be warmed and filled, but do not give to them the things that are needed for the body. James calls that faith without works. We might do as well to just call it faith that doesn't work. Um, it doesn't work. It's broken. It's dead. Last week, I offered a, a call to examine these kinds of things. And I'll do it again. Look for those things in your heart that you were excited to do for the Lord, but never acted on. If he stirred something in your heart and then it just kind of got cold and you moved on, do you think he changed or you did? Which is more likely? That, so love that's never acted on, you can hardly call it love. Bring those things, those those things that used to be strong in your heart, bring them before the Lord and see whether or not he would have you complete the things that thus far have only existed in the form of good ideas and the best of intentions. We see in this chapter, in the last one, that Paul wasn't willing to leave the Corinthians in the realm of faith without works. The Holy Spirit is not willing to have the children of God live in this place where they have good ideas by themselves in the dark and the quiet. We need to put this stuff to action. He's sending... Paul is sending a missionary team to Corinth to take their zeal on to maturity. Again, this is something that goes beyond the Corinthian specific situation. It is something that is essential to the function of the church itself. Um, this is actually what we're supposed to do when we get together. You, you think of this uh, verse in Hebrews 10. It's that verse that everyone knows as the verse that tells you you have to go to church. Uh, it's that do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And that's the part we know. But the context of that verse, the verse immediately preceding it goes like this, Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This is one of the reasons we go to church. We go to church, to this place, to see each other, all these people that you know or maybe don't, to prevent ourselves and others from being the kind of people who have good ideas about what Christianity should look like and none of the actions that Christianity commands. We hold each other accountable by stirring up love and good works in one another, and this is basically what Titus and his crew are going to do in Corinth. There's something else in this first paragraph that goes beyond the Corinthian-specific situation, and that is the principles surrounding giving. In verse 5, he says they ought to prepare their generous gift beforehand. And he says that the amount, whatever it was, was according to a previous promise. Did you catch that? If giving is done intentionally like this, Paul says, that then it becomes a matter of generosity rather than a grudging obligation. There's wisdom here for the giver, and there's wisdom here for anyone who is in the position, like Paul, who needs to ask for money. Don't make this a grudging obligation. Encouraging someone to minister to Jesus Christ through giving to the poor or contributing to this ministry or that ministry should not be a sales pitch. In sales, you want to close, right? You close the deal. You get them to sign. You work the crowd or the client until they feel compelled to buy what you are selling. And for many, this exchange ends up feeling somewhat like a grudging obligation. That's not how Christians give. It shouldn't be how Christians let needs be known. I suppose we should realize right now that Paul is not a very good salesman because he doesn't want to catch them unawares and then put the pressure on. He's not going to do a sermon on giving when he gets there and then squeeze the Corinthians for their last nickel. All he's saying is this. You've already thought about this. You decided to do something like a year ago. Um... 
You should do it on your own time because I'm not asking twice. Great sales pitch, Paul. For the, for the giver, the principle is this. You make up your mind what you are going to give, how much and to whom, way before it's time to hand a check over or drop some money in a box. You decide that before. With prayer, with, with prayer, in times of prayer, you consider what it is the Lord would have you give and then give that much when the time comes. What Paul is talking about here is not a weekly offering. It's a special offering, but I think the principles work in any giving opportunity. If it's a weekly offering, you decide how much beforehand what you are going to give before you come to church. This is not, or sorry, this is one of the reasons why we have a box in the back and not a plate that is passed. If giving is supposed to be something that the individual decides on beforehand, then they'll find a way to give. And you have. The box is for people following biblical principles of giving. It's not something pushed on them. There's nothing about it that should feel like an obligation. Now, giving is an act of worship. We read that in Scripture, and I understand why a church would have giving as part of the worship service the way we used to. I'm not saying that's wrong or anything like that, but what we see in Scripture is a principle of individuals giving privately according to a pre-decided uh, principle, an amount, a, 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 uh, something that they wrote down and decided and weren't, didn't have their arm twisted into, um, without compulsion. We see that neither of these things should have an effect on generosity, and that's been our observation at this church. The box isn't hard to find, and there's always been enough. Now, when we talk about giving like this, making up your mind beforehand, not just reaching into your pocket and finding a loose change in breath mint, you know, and donating that, you, you might ask, well, what about like special giving though? Like there's times when just like the need arises and then you got to do something. It's like, like, I didn't have time to plan. Yeah, you did. You did. Because those things always happen. You know, this principle still works. You do have time to plan for that kind of giving and you should. You get money every so often and once a month or so. You have a responsibility to manage that money well. And you should have some sort of budget or something that lets you know how to spend that money. If you can afford it, you can have money set aside for giving for things like that. And you can decide before the need arises to have a certain dollar amount ready to go. It's not more spiritual somehow to just see the need and then scrounge around your car to see if you have enough money to buy the homeless lady something at McDonald's. Like, just because you didn't plan, that doesn't make you spiritual. Um... You know, you might think you're walking by faith. You might just be walking without any planning. Since both are uncomfortable, you can confuse the two at times, but they're not the same thing. Um, you know how much money you have and how much time you have and what you can give, what you can afford. It's far better to make the decision beforehand, right? Giving into your budget. If you want to be able to say yes to a visiting missionary or one that we're sending to Nepal today, or you want to be able to help out a family next time there's some sort of emergency, because there's going to be one, then decide that now. Decide that before you meet them, before the need arises and you're like, I spent all the money, I can't do anything because I didn't plan for this thing that's definitely going to happen. Um, you know, it's great to see like when a, when a community pulls around something like an emergency and everyone gives, we have fires, right? We have fires. People lose homes. When that happens, there's a lot of willingness like the Corinthians had. And it's great to see generosity in those moments but you know those needs are going to arise. So decide beforehand what you can afford to give, how you can help. Put the money aside now so that when your neighbor needs help, you can obey the command to love your neighbor as yourself. 
If you and when the time comes, when the need arises, you've already got what they need. Um, that's the kind of giving that Paul is encouraging in Corinthians. He says you thought about this a year ago, so put the money aside and do something about it. Be prepared. And then the question arises, well, how much though? And the vague answer is probably more than you think. Uh, that's what Paul says in verse six and seven. He says, but I, I will say this. He says, even though you've thought about it, even though you had an amount predetermined, you're like, that's the number. I'm going to let you know, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, giving is a grace. We saw that a couple weeks ago. It is a grace that the Lord gives his people and enables them to give generously. It's a blessing to be able to give, even more than to receive, strangely enough. That's what the scripture tells us. Because of this, giving sparingly, being stingy, will be less of a blessing than the one who gives generously or bountifully. Now, Paul is really quick to follow up this verse with a, a repeat of the importance of planning out this kind of giving beforehand. He reemphasizes this point that it's not grudgingly or out of necessity. This isn't Christian tax. There's not a bill in the mail. You know, he makes this point crystal clear that the real issue is one of the heart, the cheerfulness. It's not the numbers of zeros on the check or something. If, if there's any lesson in, you know, the widow's might it teaches us that the final dollar amount really isn't impressive to God. And it's not, it's not what we're blessed for. We're not buying blessings. And the more you give, the better off you'll be or something crazy like that. But there is a principle of sowing and reaping. If you plant a lot of seeds, more crops come up. There's a bigger harvest. That's just the way it works. When you give, if you can, you want to give as much as you can. You want to go big. And cheerful givers, those who have been graced with this gift of giving, know this. They want to give big things. They want to give more. You want to give generously. You want to give into this, um, you know, you want to go into this proposition with the question, how much can I give? Not what's the bare minimum I can get by with because I hear we're supposed to do this. Okay. And, and what, what shifts from, you know, that place you don't want to be onto this cheerful giver, this, this enthusiastic, generous giver, is having this eternal mindset Seeing this life as the temporary existence that it is, it's short, it's over fast, nothing lasts. And as we look forward to a harvest that's coming that will last forever and ever and ever, you want to make use of the temporal material things to their greatest potential. And giving them away is, is one of the ways that make, makes treasure last in heaven. The giver, the one who has been gifted to give, will desire to be investing in the kingdom of God. And it won't be given with a grudge. Can you imagine holding a grudge against Jesus because you gave him too much money? Like, that's crazy. It won't be given with a grudge. It won't feel like taxes. It will be a joy, and it's a joy that runs in both directions because heaven is rejoicing. God loves the cheerful giver. So Paul is describing two kinds of giving. There's the right way, there's the wrong way. He says there's the obligatory kind, the transactional kind, and then the loving kind. And you know the difference, because when you love someone, you want to give to them. If you see someone you love in need, it is your greatest joy, it's your greatest relief to be able to give to that person. In fact, it's almost a, a cause for panic if you realize you're unable to give that person you love what they need. So to, to give out of love, it's, it's a relief. You, you sigh after giving whatever that person needs. Or if you see something that you know, you know, 
that person you love will love. It's like, that's their thing. They need to have it. They're going to love it. It's pure pleasure to be able to get that thing and then give it to them. It's cheerful giving. That's what God likes to see. I believe this is another reason why giving is to be preceded by careful examination. Because as you examine, what can I give? What should I give? Where should I give to? You're examining the purposes of your heart. You're examining the loves of your heart saying, what? What am I giving out of love here? What do I love? We examine our loves and then give accordingly. Why would God love a cheerful giver? Because the cheerful giver is the one who's giving out of love, and love is kind of his thing. Love for God and love for neighbor is our calling. The Lord delights to see his children walking in love. He loves it when we love him. He loves it when we love each other. He loves it when we love our neighbors. He loves it when we love our enemies. Giving out of love, giving because you love, it's a happy thing. It's, it's something you will be cheerful about. Anyone who has ever loved knows this from personal experience. This is the kind of giving that God is looking for. Let's go on. We'll read verses 8 and 9. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. When he says God is able to make all grace abound towards you, he's saying two things, I think. He's referring to material provision, saying that God will take care of your needs. Paul writes this elsewhere. But he's also talking, he's been talking about spiritual blessings that are available for those who give generously. He's, he's saying God will make sure there's enough to go around. Yes, it, it's not as if you're going to go completely broke and starve to death because you gave generously. That's very rare. Uh, God is able to make grace abound to you. But he's also saying God is able to do the work in your heart that is necessary for you to become the Christ-like giver that God is making you into. He's able to give you every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, right? Paul says that in, in Ephesians 1. He, he's already told the Corinthians that they will always have all sufficiency in all things. He told them all things are yours twice already in, in, the, in his letters to the Corinthians. And we know when he's talking like that about every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, he's not just talking about, you know, cash. God will reimburse you for your gift. It's tax deductible. You know, he's saying like, no, God is blessing you by changing your heart into a heart that, that looks like God's heart. He's able to make all grace abound towards you. And this grace will make you abundant for every good work. Paul is saying that as the Corinthians increase in their generosity, God will bless them with the spiritual fruit, with the heavenly virtues that enabled them to live in a Christ-like manner, not only in their generosity, but in all the other Christian virtues in which they're growing. God will enable them by his spirit to do the good works that they're called to do. He's able to give you all things pertaining to life and godliness. And the generous heart, the cheerful giving heart, is more in tune with the God who wants to give these blessings. He's able to give you everything you need to walk in obedience. And you'll see his provision and his graces as you step out into obedience. Now he quotes this verse from the psalm, Psalm 112 verse 9. And it's a psalm about the righteous man. And you read it here. When it says, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And you're like, that's probably God, right? That's not a bad way to read the Bible. Just assume it's about Jesus, Sunday school answers and everything. But in this case, it's actually talking about a righteous man who is blessed by God. It's just the ultimate good guy. 
It's the good guy who gives to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. Paul is encouraging Christians to be that kind of person. He says, do you want to be a mature Christian? Do you want to grow up into this, uh, into the fullness of the stature of Christ? Well, if you want to be that kind of person, you'll be the kind of person that gives to the poor. You'll be generous. And then he offers this sort of benediction, a prayer of blessing, asking God to bless the blessers and give to the givers. He says, now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. Paul prays, may God bless you so that you can keep being a blessing. But he says it way better than that. He calls their gift a seed that is planted, and he has hopes for a great harvest. He highlights God's own caring generosity again, saying that even the seed you're sowing, that's his anyway. He provides the seed. Whatever you're giving, oh, that was his already. The bread for food, that's from him too. He gives you all that you have. And the way you get more of what he has for you is in part from how generous you are with the things that are already his. Now, I love verse 11, which confidently says, while you are enriched in everything, it's for all liberality. He gives you everything, and it's for giving. Please know this. If you have been blessed, and you have, those blessings are from God. He has blessed you. Whether it's the seed for planting or the bread for eating, those blessings are yours from heaven. James chapter 1, it says, every good and perfect gift is from above. It's from him. But make no mistake, the reason he has blessed you and enriched you in all things is for liberality, which is just another way of saying you've been blessed so that you can bless. The ESV translates this well, says you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. So again, if you have been blessed and you have, please know that those blessings are from God and those blessings are for you to give away. God has been generous to you so that you can be generous. Remember, it's, it's his anyway. You're just someone that he's willing to be a co-worker with, saying, I want to bless those people. I'm going to do it through you. I'm going to bless that ministry. I'm going to do it through you. You get to go to work with dad, be about your father's business, and, and take his stuff to support his projects. Run the family business with God the Father, creator of the universe. Now, this line of thought continues. The blessing begins with God. He supplies the seed for the sower, the bread for food. It's all from him. It's for you to give away. The things you have are for you to use in order to be a blessing. But there's more. This blessing of others, this generosity towards others, ultimately results in heavenly worship, thanksgiving to God. Your good works are done so that people can glorify your Father in heaven. Our lives are lived to the glory of God. When we think only of being useful or giving so that problem X can be solved by resource Y, we're only thinking of part of the equation. That's not the full story. Giving cheerfully, out of love, serving selflessly because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. All of this is part of the means, not the end. The end is that God receives glory. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We do both of those things by giving generously. This ultimate purpose in giving is exactly what Paul spells out in verse 12. He says, For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, 
but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. You gave the money, and there's people that didn't have money, and now they do. That's only part of the, of the, the glory of giving. The rest of it is that God is praised. God being praised is the ultimate goal. This makes sense when you think of an ultimate anything. Think of heaven. What ministries are going to go on in eternity when everything is perfect and we see God as he is? Are we going to be giving to the poor? I don't think so. No evangelism either. Not in heaven. I don't know that I'll be giving Bible studies on Wednesdays and Thursdays. I don't know if there's going to be Wednesdays or Thursdays. I really don't. But, but I do know that we are going to worship. Bringing people to a place where they praise God, worship God, offer thanksgiving to God, that's as close to perfection as we can come this side of earth. And that is a result of giving generously. People praise God when they see people care for the, the needy. So giving provides the need, but also causes God to be praised. And he is praised not only because the poor are cared for, but because it, it becomes evident that the gospel is actually working and the people that say they believe it do. The faith in the giver is genuine. The obedience of the generous Christian shows that their testimony is valid. Look at 13 and 14. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. This ministry of giving to the poor provides evidence of the sincerity of the believer's and their commitment to the gospel of Christ. It demonstrates that their confession of faith isn't just words, but it's backed up by their actions of giving and sharing. Their generosity and willingness to help others, that liberal sharing he writes about, it reflects their dedication to the teachings of Jesus Christ. God is praised because when people give, others can say they actually believe it. Paul is saying the same thing that Jesus told the disciples in the upper room. They'll know you're my disciples. They'll know your testimony is valid by your love for one another. And this love manifested in the ministry of action and not just good intentions proves that these Christians were serious about the gospel. It's proof that they believe what they say they believe. That phrase, obedience of your confession to the gospel, that's interesting. A confession is a statement of belief. It's not just something that precedes an apology. Uh, the historic confessions of faith begin with the words, I believe in. I believe. So the Corinthians had said they believed something. They, they were saying, I believe this about God. I believe this about Jesus. I believe this about the church. So the Corinthians said they believed something. They believed, among other things, that God loved them, saved them, and sent them. If they had some sort of early version of the Apostles' Creed, then they would have been able to say, I believe in the communion of the saints. Well, by serving and giving and loving others, they show that this confession of the gospel was something that they were obedient in. It wasn't just something to recite. It was something to live. God is praised when his people walk in obedience. God is glorified when his people live according to their convictions, which are shaped by the confession to the gospel. We say we believe that we're one body with the rest of believers. When we live like that, God is praised. We say that he is generous and that we want to be like him. When our actions line up with this confession, God is praised. The hope of this kind of pure worship being offered up to our generous God leads Paul right to worship. And it leads us to the same place. Verse 15 says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Praise God. 
Now, what is his indescribable gift? Paul has said that the opportunity to give is a gift. He describes the unity of the saints that results from this kind of care, how the, the one who is cared for prays for the one who cared for them. That's a gift. That's a grace. He's written about God's provision, both of spiritual goods and of material goods, and assured the Corinthians that there's more than enough to go around. They don't have to worry about that. All of these things are part of God's good and perfect gifts, and all the gifts come from him, right? But I think it's telling that Paul does not say, thanks be to God for his indescribable gifts, his many, many indescribable gifts. No, it's a gift, just one. That's because all of these good things that God gives, a place in his family, unity with other saints, spiritual riches, spiritual blessings in heavenly places, all of those things are all given to us in one gift. It's all in Christ. Christ is the sum of all spiritual things. God gives us one thing, and it's himself. The rest of the stuff, it's, it's the evidence. It's the overflow. It's how we see that one gift being effective, efficacious. God has given you his son. God has made you one with himself. He has invited you to live the life of Christ with him, to live with him, die with him, be raised with him into newness of life. That's all one gift. It's all Jesus. It's all just Jesus for you. All this other stuff, like caring for each other's needs and giving generously, that's not the blessing. It's just the result of receiving the one big blessing, the one indescribable gift. Jesus is the gift that God has given to you, and our lives are shaped and changed as we are united to him in faith. There may be practical things you need to work out in light of this chapter of how to give, when to give, how to plan for that, whatever. But the call is always, always, always to Christ himself. The prayer is, God, unite me to Christ and let me live with him, die with him, be raised with him. Knowing that this includes your giving and your service and everything else, we pray, Jesus, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. As we consider these things, we would do well to end where Paul ends, not with a command or a question or a strategy, but with praise, realizing that the real giver is God. We praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you. We worship you now, giving you our hearts, our minds, uh, our entire lives, Asking you, please, Jesus, to receive from us our willing hearts. Use us, Lord. Use your church to bring praise to your name, to assure the world that our faith is legitimate, and to provide the needs of those that you love. Give us generous hearts. Let us be the cheerful givers you would call us to be. Bless your church as you have been doing, as you have promised to do. We ask this in full confidence and assurance of faith. Bless your church. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please stand. Mm. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Sent.